At this time, children ages four through second grade are dismissed if they wish to be to our Covenant Kids time. It's a chance for them to worship um, at a teaching uh, more at their, at their level, and that'll just be through the back doors or in the back, have a couple teachers there, and I'll invite Pastor Bindewald up to uh, present the word to us today from the book of Esther. Good morning. Happy to fill in again. Uh, John is out of town for a wedding, and it's my privilege to continue the series in Esther. Today we are looking at chapter 8, uh, 17 verses. So let's continue. You can read in your Bible or follow along on the screen. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who were in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that's coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan in the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in the script of their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. 
on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province, in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, again for your word. Thank you for this amazing story from the book of Esther. And we ask again this morning that you would help us to see and to freshly appreciate what you have done for us in the giving of Christ, the great King. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Have you heard of a yogiism? Yogi Berra was a New York Yankees catcher and a coach and a Hall of Famer. You probably also know that he was famous for mangling and butchering sayings. You know what he means when he says it, but he says it in a pretty funny way. Here's a few examples. Never answer an anonymous letter. Well, if you don't know who sent it, how could you possibly respond if you wanted to anyway? Here's another one. I usually take a two-hour nap between 1 and 4 p.m. Two-hour nap, 1 to 2, 2 to 3, 3 to 4. Is it a two-hour nap or is it a three-hour nap? Here's another one. You can, you can observe a lot by watching. Okay, well, yes, you can hear a lot by listening. What do you say? <clears throat> Well, you know what he's saying when you think about it. Never answer an anonymous letter means if someone won't identify himself, then you don't need to pay any attention to any criticism. And I guess the two-hour nap between one and four likely just means I nap a couple of hours every afternoon. I don't know. Or you can observe a lot by watching probably means pay attention to what people actually do, not just to what they say, I think. But maybe you didn't know this was a yogiism. Maybe his most well-known actually fits today's sermon and text really well. Have you heard this one? It ain't over till it's over. That's a yogiism. That usually means if something is not completely finished yet, then anything is still possible. Or if things look bleak and hopeless, then hang on. Because there's still time before it ends 
And so something good could still happen. And we're seeing that fleshed out in chapter 8, and it will continue the next couple of chapters. Uh, for you outline people, verses 1 through 4, a new leader is given. In verses 5 through 14, a new edict is given. And in verses 15 through 17, a new response is given. So leading up to chapter 8, especially as we saw last week, things are still not settled. There's progress, but then there's setbacks. And this dramatic, amazing story continues in each chapter of the book, but more, it seems more always remains to be done. And last week, the vile Haman finally got everything that was coming to him. The first few verses this week follow up on that. It says, a new leader is established with King Ahasuerus, giving Esther all of Haman's estate. We're not told all that specifically entailed, but it was likely quite substantial because Haman was second in command in Susa and all of Persia right after, right behind Ahasuerus himself. And you might remember back in chapter 3, it's referred to here, chapter 3, verse 10, the king gave Haman his signet ring with all the power that that came with. And now here at verse 2 this morning, that ring is taken back from Haman and given to Mordecai. And Esther puts Mordecai in charge over the, the whole estate that she has just received. But as amazing as all of, all of that is, the death edict for all the Jews still stands. And she knows that. And so Esther now pleads the second request that we saw last week, what is your petition? Uh, what is your request? And she says, grant me my life and spare my people. Her life is safe now. So she asks for the second part that her people, the Jews, would be spared as well. And if you compare, you, you'll see that this time that, that in the past, that cool, calculated strategy that she had to string things out, it skipped, and she just throws herself down before him. She's crying and begging now. It's interesting to compare and contrast Haman and Esther. In the previous chapter, Haman falls before Esther and begs only for his own life, but he's unsuccessful. And today, Esther likewise falls down and begs and cries not for her own life, but for the lives of her people, and her request is granted. So once again, like back in chapter 5, the king stretches out his royal golden scepter and he receives her. And this time, her request is granted immediately. There are no dinner parties with uh, coy and veiled games going on. She just goes straight for it. She asks for a new edict. This beginning in verse 5, and she does choose her words carefully. And if you notice, in the first part of verse 5, how she makes a four-part request. First, she says, if it pleases the king, 
Secondly, if he regards me with favor. Thirdly, if he thinks it's the right thing to do. And fourthly, if he is pleased with me. Numbers one and three, number one was if it pleases the king, and number three was if he thinks, if he, the king, thinks it's the right thing to do. Numbers one and three have to do with the king, and she intersperses with that and his wishes with numbers two and four. And number two is if he guards, regards me, referring to herself now. And then number four is if he is pleased with me. So she, we would think, has interwoven his love for her into the mix. And you notice she doesn't appeal to a, a greater sense of right and wrong or justice and injustice, not that. That's never been important to this king. So all she could do was to appeal to his own self-interest, but in regard to her. So it amounts to an argument like, like this. Ahasuerus, if you really love me and you want to make me happy, you will do this for me because watching my people die before me will cause me terrible pain. And how could anyone who loves me, like you say you do, endure seeing me suffer like that? That comes out pretty clearly in verse 6 where she says, how can I bear to all of this? And the king replies in verses 6 and 7, but it's still a little bit less than fully satisfactory. Verse 7 says, okay, look, Esther, I gave you all the money you could ever want with Haman's estate, and I killed him, your enemy, because he schemed against you and your uncle and your people. What more could you possibly want from me? So when we, we look at it, verse 7 is saying that Ahasuerus gave Esther exactly what he would have wanted. He assumed she was just like him, and so he gave her things that spoke only to her own self-interest and herself. Why are you going beyond that? King seems to have no frame of reference for what she's now asking. She's identified with her people and therefore has a new, much wider perspective. She's saying salvation for herself was not enough if it came without salvation for her people as well. So here's our first point of application this morning. Are you increasingly aware of the fact that you are a member of the wider body of Christ? Not just here at Covenant Community, not just the PCA, but the whole worldwide body of Christ. You heard the, the missions moment. You're part of that because you and I are part of this bigger family of God. Too quickly we say, yeah, but which branch of the family of God? Are, are they reformed enough? Or the, no, let's remember, we did it again, the Apostles' Creed that we affirm this morning again. It says, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. The word Catholic is not capitalized, meaning it's everyone, everywhere, all Bible-believing, trusting Christians, I believe in that church. And it's past, present, and to come. We are part of something much larger. 
So back to verse 8, the king has just said, well, what more could you want? And I think we can tell here in verse 8, you can tell he seems to be a little bit out of his element. He doesn't know what to say exactly. So he just says, well, just write another decree, whatever seems best. He says, I don't really know what to do or say about it, but feel free to use my name. And then this puzzling last comment, he says, no document is written in the king's name or sealed with his ring can be revoked. Sort of a, say what? In other words, there's an irrevocable document out there that says the Jews must die, but go ahead and write another one, a contradictory one, which would then also be irrevocable. It's as if the king is saying, let the best edict win. He doesn't seem to know. And I think this is another example of the author of the book of Esther mocking Ahasuerus as this a, a buffoon of a king, a self-centered, foolish man who really has no regard at all for the people under him. He's already been duped and manipulated by Haman into signing that first deadly genocide edict, and here he's personally encouraging his new second-in-command to send out another one, sight unseen, just do what you want. I think that's another application point. Think again today about how our wonderful, loving, caring Heavenly Father would never treat us this way. Our Father, our God, is, is loving and kind beyond all measure and has committed himself with sovereign care over us all forever. What a contrast. What an amazing difference between the pagan king Ahasuerus and our glorious Father in heaven. Well, in verses 9 and 10, Mordecai wastes no time with the power given to him. The information is, is clearly spelled out in the language of all 127 provinces, just like Haman's prior edict, but this time sent out, you saw, on specially bred fast horses. Can't resist a little horse joke here. Um, these are not just six-cylinder Ford Mustangs, but Shelby GT500 Cobra Super Snake Mustangs with 800 horsepower. That's a real car. This is the difference between your grandmother's Chevy and a Ferrari. And the, the point is, the message must get through in time. The clock is ticking on that first decree, and the new one has to get to the most distant parts of the empire in time. And then, in verses 11 through 13, we see the details of Mordecai's edict, and it sets forth uh, measure for measure retaliation by the Jews against their enemies. They can now kill any attacker along with their families and can plunder all their goods. Now this edict amounted to more than self-defense, a little more than that, but it was not indiscriminate slaughter either. Now, I take their word for it. Hebrew language scholars uh, tell us, the commentators say this, that in verse 13, this phrase, uh, ready to take vengeance, they say, scholars say, always indicates not just 
plain retribution, but retribution for a prior wrong. When that phrase is used, they say it always means more than just fighting back defensively when cornered, but it does stop short of wholesale, unprovoked slaughter. The clear message was, if you, like Haman, try to destroy the seed line of the Jews, then right in line with this edict, you will share the same fate that fell on them, on him. When you step back from this for a moment, you, I think you see something amazing here. <clears throat> One commentator said, the authority of the pagan empire, Ahasuerus's vast, powerful empire, the authority of that empire with this new edict now backs up the Abrahamic covenant. Only God could do something like that. God uses the godless, mighty Persian empire to protect the seed line of his promised Messiah. Here's another dramatic illustration of the main thesis of the book of Esther, that the sovereign God of the universe will move heaven and earth to see to it that his promised Messiah, Jesus, would be born in Bethlehem, the city of David, and he would grow up to live a perfect life to accomplish and earn your righteousness and also to die in your place and pay for the sins, your sins, and rise the third day in victory over death for all eternity, and woe to the man who gets in the way of that. Think for a moment how God has perver uh, preserved the seed line of his promised Messiah. This is a great theme in Scripture to study and look through. It started all the way back in Genesis 3 when Satan tried to separate Adam and Eve from God by tempting them and causing them to be banished from heaven. It started right away. But immediately after they sinned, the next words out of God's mouth essentially were, I will save you. He said there will from now on be bitterness and strife between Satan and his offspring and Eve's offspring, meaning Jesus. So this ages-long battle started when God said Satan, Genesis 3, 15 and 16, that Satan would bruise Jesus' heel, which refers to his death on the cross, meaning that because he would rise again, the crucifixion would amount to no more than a bruise. And he also said Jesus would crush Satan's head, also referring to the crucifixion, but saying that would in fact be a mortal wound to Satan and his whole world of sin and death. And then throughout all of Israel's history, we find many accounts of the people of God nearly being wiped out but miraculously saved. Just a few examples, evil queen Athaliah in uh, Second Kings and in Chronicles almost had all the Jews killed. Goliath almost killed David. Sarah and Abraham almost didn't have a child. In Ezra and Nehemiah, the walls almost weren't completed for the new city. Gideon miraculously defeated the Midianites. Pharaoh's army 
was destroyed just before it pounced on the Israelites in the Red Sea and on and on. You can follow that theme. It's a great study. And even after Jesus' birth, God sent the wise men home by a different route. And when that didn't work, you know what Satan did. He used Herod to kill all male children, two years old and under. And when even that didn't work, Satan tempted Jesus personally and directly in the desert, trying anything and everything to keep him from going to the cross. Satan had even tried it indirectly through the apostle Peter, who said, Lord, don't go to Jerusalem, to which Jesus responded, get behind me, Satan. So this amazing, miraculous turn of events in Esther is right in line with God keeping his promise of sending a Savior for you and for me. And again, woe to the man who gets in the way of this. So verse 14, the edict goes out. And verse 15, there's Mordecai now dressed in royal splendor. And now we're in a position to understand a little more of the title for the sermon, From Shame to Glory, From Sorrow to Joy. When the first edict was given, he went out in sackcloth and ashes and humbled and shamed, from shame, unable to even go before the king. But now after the second edict, he emerges from the presence of the king clothed in glory. There's another comparison, too. We can look back there. Uh, you can look it up or just listen. I'll tell you what it says. But remember back in chapter 3, verse 15, it says the kingdom of Susa was thrown into confusion by the first edict. But here at the end of verse 15, it says what? This time the city, same city, rejoiced. So it went from confusion to rejoicing. It's worth comparing for a moment if you're tracking or just listen. Keep your finger here in 9, 15, and 16, as it were, and turn back to chapter 4, verse 3. In chapter 4, verse 3, they're using fours, two, two sets of four things. Back in chapter 4, verse 3, there are four kinds of distress says there's great mourning, fasting, weeping, and lamenting. Mourning, fasting, weeping, and lamenting, all distress. Now, in our chapter today, in verse 16, there's four kinds of not distress, but delight, happiness, joy, gladness, and honor, and light. And so the author uses this literary technique to purposefully draw our attention to compare and contrast the difference between man's ways and God's ways. What a difference. Here is a picture of what the people of God should look like, this in our chapter today. And it raises a sobering question. What conclusion does the world draw when it asks the question, what must it be like to be a child of God? They're watching us. How do our demeanor and our attitudes 
in response to trials reflect on God our Father. And Alex mentioned it recently, and there's a quote in your, <clears throat> in your bulletin for the meditation. Uh, John Piper's piercing statement applies here, and he said, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. That means when we live lives of happy satisfaction, even in and especially in trials, God is most glorified. The world would see that and they would say how their father must love and care for them to be so peaceful and happy in the middle of trials. They must be so well loved and cared for that even in times of trouble, they still seem, at least overall, pleased with life. They must know some secret of some kind. You've no doubt heard this, but there is a difference between happiness and joy. Happiness comes from merely being in good circumstances, just things are going well, and that makes you happy. But joy, true biblical joy, comes from your settled position or standing, right standing before God, the real king. In verse 17, maybe we might wish that the Jews, it's described as praise and joy, we might wish that they were more directly explained as coming from God, but by now in this study you probably know what's going on with that. God is not mentioned directly and that is clearer today than ever by design in the book of Esther. It isn't mentioned by name, but as we've seen over these weeks, it's almost more powerful that he isn't mentioned. As the story develops, the author is silently shouting about the love and the glory of God. And the last verse, the last sentence this morning is quite telling too. It says, many people of other nationalities became Jews. They were converted because of the fear of the Jews. When they saw all this, this amazing turn of events, that seized them. And so the message is pretty clear, isn't it? Judgment is coming, but there's a way out of judgment. There's a way to avoid it, and that is only through identification with God's people. We're going to close in a minute or two with a point or two of application, but before we do, we need to make a comment about these troubling, difficult verses, 11 through 13, which talk about the destruction of the enemies of God. And I've had a number of people, maybe you have two, that says passages like this is why they can't accept Christianity. Here in our text today is the exact repeat wording of the edict itself, but it's put into effect in the next chapter, chapter 9, with much greater detail and explanation, and it will be graphic and brutal. Holy war and judgment are serious and difficult concepts, but nevertheless are in the Bible, and John gets to explain that next week. <laughs> but that does, I think, bring us to some ending applications here. I love verse 14. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses 
that were used in the king's service rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command. That's a picture of the people of God today in world missions. We are the couriers. The couriers riding the royal horses, racing out, spurred on by the king's command. Not a, not a fickle, self-centered king like we see in our text, but God, the Father himself, the Lord of the ages. Holy war isn't obsolete. It's just given us a renewed sense of urgency. So we're reminded again this morning, my friends, the king has spoken. We are couriers of truly good news, and we ride spirited royal horses. 800 horsepower Shelby Mustangs are nothing compared to the spirit-filled saints who themselves are the recipients of this same gospel of grace. Lastly, we ought to notice what spurred them on. Far more than some sense of vengeance or national pride, in, in verse 15, we're, seeing, we're told that Mordecai went out from the presence of the king. This reminds us of the fact that he had been with the king. You might recall uh, in Acts 4.13, which says this, now when they, this is Peter, when, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Uneducated and common have similar meanings. Uneducated, of course, means lacking in formal Education. They didn't have PhDs. They had not been to seminary. Now, those aren't necessarily bad things. However, we are thankful for people like Augustine and Luther and Calvin and Sproul and Jonathan Edwards and others. But it's also possible to be educated beyond one's intelligence. Some scholars are so open-minded, someone said, that their brains have fallen out. And it's interesting here uh, back in Acts 4.13, it says they were uneducated and common men. Common, I love this, is from a Greek word translated, transliterated, idiotes. You hear it? They're idiots. I have to admit, sorry, Barb, my favorite word when driving is idiot. I'm not proud of that, it's true. It literally means ignorant, the Bible's Greek word study says. Idiotes literally means ignorant. So I have repented and now I will yell ignoramus. <laughs> but seriously, I'm joking, but seriously, if that was my response, if that's what I got out of this, it would prove the opposite, that I have not been with Jesus. What the synagogue leaders in Acts 4 saw was uncommon grace and sense in men who otherwise would not have it. That's you, and that's me, when you've been with Jesus. 
the reason they had, the reason was for this, that they had learned life from the author and sustainer of real life, Jesus. Three years with him personally. You might say, wow, how I would love that. If only I could have three years with Jesus. But my friends, this gives you a lifetime with him, not just three years. So that's our ending question and thought. Have you been in the presence of the king? Mordecai left the king's presence wearing royal garments of blue and white and a large crown of gold and purple and robes of fine linen in joyous celebration. When you go into the presence of the king, the king of kings, you either come out with him having said, depart from me, I never knew you, or you come out like verse 15. They made it out alive, but far more than that, not just survived from being with the king, but thriving with the king. And so this points us ahead to Christ. He's the reason that you make it through judgment unscathed. And not just unscathed, but spiritually prosperous and healthy and joyous because you have someone else's righteousness standing for you. You who have been wrapped in the royal robes of the king's own son himself, Christ Jesus. His robes are your robes, such that verse 16 was true of them. They had light and gladness and joy and honor. Let's pray. So gracious Father in heaven, thank you again for your loving, sovereign control over all the nations of the world. Thank you for our new leader, King Jesus, who replaced our old master Satan. Thank you for our new edict of free salvation by grace and no longer under condemnation. And thank you for our new response of joy and not misery. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand. Let's sing the glory of God.